Well, today, as we've been reminded of many times already this morning, it's Easter Sunday, or as we like to call it here in this church, a Resurrection Sunday. And for us who are Christians, that's what this is. Not that there's anything wrong with Easter and bunnies and eggs and turkeys and hams and all those things, and baskets filled with candy. But for Christians, this day is about the resurrection of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the highlight Sunday of our year. In fact, the resurrection is actually, as I mentioned before, is the reason that we meet together on Sundays. Uh, The Gospels tell us that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week. We know that the Sabbath, which is when Jews worshipped and still worship, is a Saturday. It was the seventh day. But because the resurrection happened on the first day, that's now when Christians typically and historically gather together for worship. And so we're glad that, we, that you are here today on this first day of the week. If you're visiting with us this Sunday again, we are particularly glad that you are here. And we want to welcome you back anytime. The way we did things this morning is the way we sort of do things uh, typically every Sunday. Lots of singing, Bible reading, prayer, and preaching of the Word. And so we just want you to know that you are welcome to join us any Sunday. Well, if you were here last week on Palm Sunday, we started to look a little bit at the meaning of the events in and around Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. And we uh, did a bit of a tour through the scriptures, looking at one particular theme that that keeps coming up regarding the relationship uh, between humankind and God. And we're going to do a bit of a similar thing here this morning. We know from the opening pages of the Bible that God is the creator of everything. God was... That's all it says. God was in the beginning. God wasn't created. God has always existed. But then he started this work of creation. He created the heavens and the earth and light and the seas and the plants and the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars and the birds and the fish and animals. He did all of that in five days. And then it says on the sixth day that he created humans. And he created them male and female. And it says, this is different than the rest of creation, that he creates them in his own image. And he gives them responsibility. He tells them to rule and have dominion over all of the other things that he created. And so the creation of humankind becomes uh, the pinnacle, the, the high point of God's creation. The Bible says that while his creation on days 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 is good, what he created on day 6, it says, was very good. Everything was good and pleasant. Everything was beautiful. Everything was orderly. It was a perfectly functioning and harmonious world that God created. We even read that God talked with the man. There was audible communication between God and man. But it's in these first words from God to Adam that we start to see that obedience was a requirement. It was not an equal relationship between God and man. God was not a man and the man was not God. God gave Adam a command. 
And as the creator of man, he had every right to do that. The Lord God commanded the man, it says in Genesis 2.16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. This is the first time in the Bible we see the words but and shall not. God had but one requirement, one prohibition. And he gives it to the man. And with that, we see that man is given responsibility. But in Genesis chapter 3, the tempter, he's described there as the crafty serpent, the devil, comes. And because he's crafty, to whom does he go? Not to the man, but to the woman. He, He doesn't follow God's created order. The Lord commanded the man, the serpent said to the woman. And the result is disorder, chaos, sin. But after Adam and Eve sin, it says that the Lord called to the man. It's the man who is ultimately responsible. It's Adam that becomes the representative human sinner. The New Testament calls him the first Adam, the one who represents every human person who ever sinned, which is all of us. Well, the result of this sin is separation from God. God curses the serpent. He curses the man. He curses the woman. And then he sends them out of paradise, out of the garden, sends them away from his presence. Where before God walked with them and talked with them, now they're out. And if that's not bad enough, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, God puts angels there to to guard the garden and the tree of life and he equips them with a flaming sword in effect saying that the way to eternal life is now blocked why because of sin and disobedience and because of rebellion against our own creator god and as we found out on Palm Sunday. It doesn't take long. In fact, right in Genesis 4, where one of the children of Adam and Eve, Cain, kills his brother Abel, just because he thought that that his offering had been rejected by God and Abel's offering had been accepted by God. And Cain becomes, in a sense, the representative child. And now we all, as children of that first man and woman, have that same sort of characteristic. We are, at heart, selfish. Only concerned about ourselves, or at least concerned about ourselves first. And we treat each other badly. Just as a side note here on how we ought to treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord, there's a a part of Jesus' life when a lawyer comes up to him and he asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And he says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting that already by the fourth chapter of the Bible, if you go back there again, both of those commandments are broken. Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord God. And the first child of the first man kills his neighbor, which happens to be his own brother. And so, 
as humankind, Jesus knew this, we can't obey either of those commands. The first one, as Don Carson says, we always want to de-God God. We want to be God ourselves. We want to have control. And number two, our love for ourselves always seems to trump our love for our neighbor. So the greatest commandments we are unable to keep. And the first man was unable to keep them. And we follow right in those footsteps. But back to Genesis 4, Cain kind of becomes the representative child of man, the child of all humankind. He gets mad at God, he gets jealous, he kills his brother, and God rightfully gives Cain the consequences for killing his brother, Abel. But Cain replies with these words in Genesis 4.13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. And those words, even though Cain probably wasn't thinking them at that point, leaves us with a perplexing and haunting question. And that question is, are we able to bear the punishment for our sins? The facts are, number one, that God is holy, and number two, that all humans are sinners. And because God is holy, and because God is just, all offenses against him must be punished. And so Adam's sins were punished by having to be separated from God's presence. And then back in Genesis 2, God said if they disobeyed his one command, they would surely die. And so sin always leads to death. It leads to separation. It leads to death. And we see that just a little bit farther if we go on to Genesis chapter 6. And don't worry, I'm not going to go through every chapter of the Bible this slowly. We will move on. But in Genesis 6, we read there in verse 5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then this, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. What he did back in Genesis 1 and 2, he was sorry for. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Just think about that. That's just really an amazing thing to say. Humankind was so pervasively evil, right down to every intention of the thoughts of his heart, that God is sorry about his creation. But then this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Another way of translating that is Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the first time that word also shows up in the Bible. Grace. God's undeserved favor. And that tells us that while God is angry at sin, and that he must and will punish sin, God also gives favor. In other words, there's a possibility that God not, might not treat us as we deserve. And you know the rest of that story. God tells Noah to make a boat for himself and for, and for his wife and for his three sons and, and the wives of his sons, of their sons, and for two of every kind of animal. And Noah obeys, and God sends a worldwide flood. And everyone dies, except those eight, plus the animals on the ark. 
And God makes a promise that he'll never judge the earth by water again. But the boat, this this ark, becomes a, a symbol, in a sense, of God's salvation. That there will be protection from deserved judgment. And by the time we get to Moses, God has set apart a whole nation for himself. And now he makes a written code of laws. And he creates a whole system of sacrifices to deal with the inevitable times when humans will break that law. And again, we see God's grace and kindness in providing a way to deal with the sins of his people. He sets aside a nation, Israel, and he gives uh, thorough instructions on different kinds of sacrifices that need to be made for the purposes of averting judgment for sin. There were ceremonies where a mediator, a priest, would, would transfer sins from the people onto an animal. And that animal would then be killed. And so, here we have an instance of a time where instead of a sinner bearing the punishment of his own sin, an animal would bear the penalty of the sinner's sin. But we saw last week that that wasn't always the case. There were times when the sinner would still bear their own iniquities. And so these sacrifices, we can see just in that fact that they weren't an end. They couldn't finally deal with the penalty for sin. These sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again because people would sin over and over again. We know that. We experience that. We pray for forgiveness, and then next day, the same ugly thing rears its head again. And so, it still leaves us in a predicament. This was a provision for Israel, but what about the rest of us? And even for Israel, it was, it was a dead end. God would keep on providing, but they would keep on sinning, and eventually God judged his people by removing them from their land, this promised land. But even there, like with Noah, he, he preserves a remnant. He has favor on some. Even though his judgment is great, there are some who are recipients of God's grace. But what he did for his children there gives us hope that maybe he would deal with sin for people from every nation. And those kinds of promises are really scattered throughout the Old Testament. Those, those sacrifices were a pointer. They were, they were a type for those who like literature, uh, a shadow of something better to come. From before the foundation of the world, God was purposing to bring someone who would do the work that the animal was doing in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Someone who would bear the sins of his people. Only now, not just temporarily, but eternally. And we're here today because that better someone is Jesus. Jesus would be the one who would bear the sins of his people so that they wouldn't have to bear their own sins. We are just like Cain. Our punishment is greater than we can bear. But in Christ, we have a sin bearer. And so today I want us to think about what it was that Jesus actually bore on the cross on our behalf. What were the consequences that should have been ours that Jesus carried instead of us? 
And since this, this day is about the resurrection, Jesus not only came to bear our sins, but to give us life. And so I want to list a number of those consequences that should have been ours, and then look at what Jesus' death and resurrection accomplished for us. And by the way, I ran out of time. I knew I was going to run out of time by the time I got to four. There's a lot more that I could have mentioned here. But I'll just give my top four reasons, maybe. How's that? What did Jesus win for us? How is Jesus both our sin-bearing Savior and our life-giving Lord? And we're just going to fly, like I said, through a number of texts today, but I've got them, uh, at least the references there in, the, in your notes for you. So you can uh, read them again later if you'd like. Number one, Jesus bore the curse of God. Jesus bore the curse of God, just think of those words, so that you could receive the blessing of God. This is really an amazing exchange. And what we have to remember in all of this is that Jesus didn't deserve to bear any kind of penalty for anything. He was totally and completely innocent. He should only have received commendation from God. But instead, instead, he gets a form of condemnation. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the kind of commendation he should have received all the time. And he does get that. And just so everyone knows that he's obediently and gladly carrying out his mission as the Savior. And so God says that to him audibly at his baptism and again at his transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But in order to fulfill his mission, in order to preserve God's justice, he would have to in some way become a sin bearer. The sinless one would bear the sins of others. And so in Galatians chapter 3, now we're skipping way ahead to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, listen to this, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he's quoting from Deuteronomy here, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So what is this curse of the law? Well, back in verse 10, it says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And you say, well, wait a minute, that's talking about us. We are the ones that haven't done all the things written in the book of the law. We have broken and we continue to break God's laws. We deserve to be under a curse of God. But look at what it says. Christ became a curse for us. So yes, we do deserve the curse. We deserve to be cursed by God. But Christ became a curse for us. Say, instead of us. Frederick Leahy writes, He bore our sins and its consequences, even the curse of a holy God. He was treated as if he were a sinner. God's curse is his condemnation of sin and the sinner. It is his mighty action against sin. And it is instant in its effect. Christ as sin bearer was inevitably accursed by God. End quote. 
what was happening on that cross on Good Friday, behind the scenes, must have been quite something. Jesus went up on that tree. He was cursed by God because we didn't abide by all the things written in the book of the law. God pronounced curses on him when he deserved only blessing. Friends, this is the love of God. That's what just saying. This is the glory of God, that, that he would go to such great lengths, that he would act in such a way toward his beloved son, shows us his grace and his love towards sinners. Not only does he not give us what we do deserve, he gives his son what the son does not deserve. Why does Jesus become a curse? So that we might be blessed. The opposite of being cursed is being blessed. We, re- we, read, in Galatians, we read Galatians 3.13. Verse 14 says that Jesus became a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, by the blessing of, Ab- the blessing of Abraham, the blessing to Israel might come to Gentiles. So now we're included. So that we might receive the promised spirit by faith. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every blessing. So think on that. Glory in that. Righteous, sinless Jesus became a curse. And in Christ you are now blessed. And as we sang, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the good news of Resurrection Sunday is that when Jesus says, it is finished, when he said on the cross, it is finished, the curse of sin was over too. And to testify to that, God raised his son, curse over for him and for us. One of my favorite verses from one of my favorite new hymns is, uh, the hymn is in Christ alone, but the, the words in the, I think it's the third verse, say, then bursting forth in glorious day, Up from the grave he rose again. That's talking about today. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Jesus became a curse so that we would receive blessing. Number two, Jesus bore the judgment of God so that you could be justified. He bore guilt so that we would be declared not guilty. All of these are sort of one and the same in terms of what happened on the cross, but they all evoke sort of different images. And here we go into the courtroom of God's justice. But unlike our court system, our in this instance are actually against the judge himself. God is not just judging an outside case based on the law of the land. He is actually the lawmaker. He's the judge and he is the offended party. And we can put ourselves in the criminal's ball of God's punishment, or all all sins against God are punishable by death. All sins against God incur the death penalty. And so we're there, in the prisoner's box, helpless, awaiting the sentence. But all of a sudden, the judge brings someone else out. He puts forth someone else. In fact, he puts forth his own son. In fact, he puts forth his own completely righteous son, one who had never sinned, one who is God. And he takes you out of the prisoner's box and puts Jesus in there instead. 
And he judges Jesus by giving him the punishment for your sins against holy God, against the judge. And Jesus receives your sentence. He receives the death penalty. The judge transfers your penalty to an innocent man, his own son. And he will suffer that penalty on the But not only that, that would be amazing enough. But God takes the righteousness of the Son. He not only takes your unrighteousness and puts it on the Son, but He takes the righteousness of the Son and puts it on you. Well, don't take my word for it. We could go to lots of places that explain that. But just listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21, the passage from the passage that I read before. For our sake, He, that's God, made Him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. It's got to take some time to sort of take that verse apart a little bit, and you'll see the glory of it. God made Jesus who knew no sin. God, God brought him in to be sin who knew no sin. He was totally undeserving of God's wrath and punishment so that we might become, in God's eyes, the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus gets our punishment. We get his righteousness. Jesus gets judged on the cross. We get justified through faith in Jesus. We get acquitted. That's an amazing exchange. And again, God signals his acceptance of that sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. Number three, Jesus bore the forsakenness of God so that you could be reconciled to God. We see this right on the cross in those unforgettable words of Jesus himself where he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou, why have you forsaken me? This is one of those hard things to wrap our heads around. God the Father and and God the Son, we always know that they are so uh, united. I and the Father are one. Those kind of words come to mind. That it's hard to figure out what exactly Jesus is saying here. Has God really forsaken his Son? And is Jesus really questioning the Father? Or even interrogating him in those moments before he died? Why? Why are you doing this? Is Jesus actually expecting an answer from God? The answer is no. This is Jesus experiencing the anguish that comes with bearing sins. And Jesus is up on that cross. As he's up there, he's, he's feeling the weight and, and the burden of bearing all of your past, present, and future thing, sins. Just think about that. He is carrying all the sins that you have ever committed and will ever commit if you are his child. But not only that, he's feeling the weight and the burden of carrying the sins of all his chosen children, past, present, and future. But not only that, the absolute worst part of it is that the incarnate Son of God is feeling the weight and burden and anguish of the Father turning his face away from the Son. Because in that moment, he was the sin-bearer. And God and sin cannot coexist. And so for the first time, 
in Jesus' incarnate life and pre-incarnate life. Even as he is accomplishing the Father's will and bearing the cup of the Father's anger against sin, Jesus is feeling forsaken by the Father. Thabiti Ani Abuile writes, At three o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, the Father turned his face away, and the ancient eternal fellowship between Father and Son was broken. As divine wrath rained down like a million Sodoms and Gomorrahs, And so we can feel the agony of Jesus' words here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And well, we should. Why? Because this is, listen to this, this is what everyone will feel if they're not united with Christ in his death, at their death. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is how the Easter story would end for you. When you die, you will feel the forsakenness of God. If you die without repenting from your sin and without trusting in Jesus to bear your wrath on the cross, you will be eternally forsaken by God. And just like Jesus cried out in agony on the cross, you will feel that same kind of anguish and darkness and loneliness and separation. But the good news is that Jesus experienced that feeling of forsakenness so that you wouldn't have to. If you do repent and if you do put your faith on what Jesus did on that cross and bearing the penalty for your sins, you will be reconciled to God. Back to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. God has reconciled to us, us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and against them. So there you have it. Jesus bore the forsakenness of God so that you could be reconciled to God. You know what's interesting? One of the the great promises of the Bible that that you probably quote a lot, at least I quote, um, for Christians is this. It's from God. It says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Praise God. Praise Jesus for taking that sacrifice for us so that we would never feel forsaken. Well, like I said, we could have more points here, but let's just drive this home by reflecting on resurrection glory on this Resurrection Sunday. Jesus bore death, finally, so that you could have life. Jesus Jesus died on Friday, but he rose from the dead on Sunday. What does resurrection mean? Well, it means lots of things. It means that Jesus defeated Satan. It means God was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. Uh, The grand purpose of God has been accomplished. Salvation has come. Sin has been defeated. It means all those things. But in its very essence, resurrection means life. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus lived again. He was resurrected. Separation was not the end of the story. Forsakenness was not the end of the story. Death wasn't the end of the story. And so it is for you if you put your faith in the accomplishments and the work of Christ alone. When you do that, you become united with Christ. He suffered the punishment that you should have suffered, and he died the death that your sins should have earned you. Your punishment is too great to bear. It is, 
but he bore your death. And he rose from the dead. Here's how Romans 6, verse 4 and 5 puts it. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgress, in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, there's that word again, you have been saved. Resurrection is life. Jesus was resurrected and we need a resurrection too. And we can have it. We can have new life through the resurrection of Jesus. He died so that you might live. He was raised so that you might have life. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, one more time, verse 17, we're kind of going backwards through the chapter, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, just think of those words. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And remember where we started this morning. We started in the Garden of Eden. And remember what happened after Adam sinned? God, let's look at it again, Genesis 3, verse 24, right at the end of that chapter where man fell. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard what? To guard the way to the tree of life. The tree, that, that tree that was there in the middle of the garden. The first humans that God created were barred, forbidden, to go into the presence of God and from the tree of life. But now if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You have been born again. You have new life. Because of sin, humankind is separated from God. Because of sin, Humankind is separated from life. But praise God, because of Jesus, because of his sin-bearing death, and because of his life-giving resurrection, humankind can be reconciled with God. Because of Jesus, humankind can have life, spiritual life, true life, eternal life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our great God and our great Heavenly Father, on this day when we reflect upon the events of this week and when we marvel at what was accomplished and when we glory in the fact that Jesus is alive, we are filled with praise, with gratitude, with worship. Your plan and your purposes were so amazingly and perfectly and willingly carried out. Your son was in anguish and in pain, yet he was willing to say, not my will but yours be done. And he did it. He did it. He was numbered with the transgressors. He identified with, with sinners like us. Not just by hanging out with sinners, but by bearing their sins on a cross. 
He, he preached the gospel and then he became the gospel. How grateful you, we are for your plan of salvation. And today especially, we're grateful that you raised Jesus from the dead. He, he took our place in death and he took our place in being raised from the dead so that we too might have life. That we might be born again. That we might live eternally. So we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that Jesus lived and died to buy my pardon. Thank you that an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us, which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.